You're listening to another episode of the Sacred Changemakers podcast. My name is Jane Warrilow, and I have another great guest lined up for you today. But before we enjoy a deep conversation together, I want to remind you why you're here. Because this podcast, it's about change and transformation, but not just any old change. We believe in change for good, which lies at the intersection of three things, purpose, impact, and prosperity for all. We want to encourage you to think a little wider about your own life from your personal and professional development to also ask the question, how can I make a meaningful impact with my life? It's time for us to find a way to live in resonance with each other and all living things. And at Sacred Changemakers, we're here to help, to build the foundations of a more equitable, loving and resonant world. So come with us on a journey as we go behind the scenes with people who are making a real difference in our world. Sometimes we're going to be interviewing changemakers and sometimes we'll be leading deep dive conversations, tackling the challenging issues of our times. But first, a word to our sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by our sister company, Coaches Business School, who exist for one reason only, to help coaches fulfill their potential so they can live a meaningful life and grow their business in a way that is profitable, predictable, and purpose-driven. These are rare humans who have a deep purpose and calling to make a difference, and we help them to make a greater impact. If that sounds like something you would be interested in, you can find out more information at coachesbusinessschool.com. Okay, guys, so our guest on the podcast this week is Daniel Eds. For 25 years, Dan has been a practicing management consultant. He's the author of two books. His most recent is titled Leveraging the Genetics of Leadership, Cracking the Code of Sustainable Team Performance. Now, this book demonstrates how elite organizations are revolutionizing the practice of leadership transforming the world of work and setting new standards for employee engagement and customer value. In his consulting practice, Dan helps senior leaders design high impact cultures of courageous and engaged employees. It sounds like we have some incredible things in common here, Dan, so I'm looking forward to our conversation. And the title we landed on for today was Creating Organizational Cultures of Courage. So welcome to the podcast, Dan. Uh, thank you, Jane. It's terrific to be with you. Oh, I'm so looking forward to our conversation. As I said, we've so much in common, my friend. <laughs> but before we dive into our topic today, I'd love to help our listeners just learn a little bit about the real life human behind that professional bio that we just heard. Tell us a little bit about him. Well, uh, uh, I, have, I have a family. Um, I've been married for 32 years. Um, I have a son, and uh, the most important thing I think about me and who I am as I have grown and, and developed in the last many, many years is uh, I think a real appreciation for the human capabilities and opportunities for transformation that we all make. Um, that sounds pretty almost moralistic, but let me just give you a simple example of how I see that. For the last um, four, five, six years, I have been volunteering in a local state penitent penitentiary, uh, working with men who have committed some certifiably horrific crimes. 
Yet, um, every time I'm visiting with these men, I see the opportunity for transformation. And I see the transformation literally right before my eyes. And it is a stunning thing to see when a man has been convicted of a horrific felony and to watch him grow as a human being. And even at some point to say, you know, I'm actually grateful that I'm in prison because if I didn't come to prison, I would be dead by now. Wow. And uh, that's the thing is those kinds of experiences of transformation, both at the personal level, but also seeing it in organizations that just uh, absolutely drives what I do and who I am. Mm. That is just amazing because, you know, very often I, I can go into organizations and change can be a dirty word. <laughs> mm-hmm. So to think that people that are incarcerated have that that openness to change is mm-hmm. really quite inspirational, I think. But I want to ask you, Dan, you know, how did you get to where you are today so that you value that transformation in the way yeah. that, because I could hear your passion behind that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it didn't happen um you know, one single moment in time, but, but I'll give you an example of something that um, happened to me probably eight, nine years ago. Now uh, I had been called in to assist. Uh, it was a fairly large state agency. Um, they were by any measure a mess. Um, and uh, this agency, they regulated 450,000 healthcare providers and uh, I finished the project and it was really a lot of, a lot of it was about cost recovery and, and their systems and their processes to uh, actually provide the, the kind of regulatory um, uh, environment that they were required by law to do. And I, um, I had finished the project. We had about an 18 month window to implement it. Um, and uh, I was having my last conversation with the deputy director my hand was on the door, my coat was on, my computer bag was in my hand, and I was just getting, getting ready to walk out. And in almost a tone that was confessional, she said, um, you know, I don't even tell my friends where I work anymore. And I turned around, I look at, looked at, I said, well, why not? And she said, it's just too embarrassing. And that was one of those moments in time when something just sort of snapped inside my head and I said, you know, that's almost criminal that we ask bright, intelligent, well-educated, hardworking professionals to work in a culture where they were embarrassed about who they work for. And, um, you know, it was just something that sort of snapped in me at that point. That And I, I thought, you know, if I ever have a chance to do something about this, I'm going to do something about it. And uh, uh, later on, there was another uh, sort of another one of those sort of lightning bolt um, engagements. Um, it's actually kind of funny. Um, I'd finished this lean engagement. And at the end of four days, we had two beautiful value stream maps on the wall. People were excited. And there's like 18 people on this team. And one of their more senior leaders um, at the end of the 40 days walked up to the manager of this division, really, um, 
and the and the the, the guy who you walked up to the manager and he's got, this guy is probably six two six three weighs two hundred fifty pounds grabs him, his boss <laughs> by the lapels of his sport coat picks him up so he's just standing on his on his toes physically shakes him and says if you don't do something with this don't ever ask me to help you with this kind of transformational um, opportunity ever, ever again, and then set them back down. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, again, it was just one of those moments in time where I thought there's something going on here that if I could figure out how to fix, um, I could help change the world. Yeah. And I, that, that is great. I think some of us have these trigger moments where it's suddenly, I don't know about you, but it's like my perspective on the world just mm -hmm. shifts in that mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. So our title for today, creating organizational cultures of courage. Mm -hmm. So is that what came out of these moments for you? Well, it actually came after that. So um, when I, uh, I actually started to ask the question, myself the question uh, several years ago, how do high impact organizations approach the practice of leadership? And there was a sort of a subtext to the question, which was, you know, is there any evidence of, of, a, of a system in place? And um, as I, the more I got looking at it, the more I got studying it, researching, um, interviewing key leaders in education, healthcare, uh, the US military, and, and even groups as diverse as an, L, uh, an NFL Super Bowl champion, the Salvation Army, and just for fun, the New York Mafia. Um, what I found consistently was organizations that are really abandoning traditional models of leadership, creating cultures uh, using a systems approach to leadership. They're creating cultures where, as crazy as it sounds, the, they are intentionally freeing the human uh, capability, bringing out the full spectrum of, of human capacity, interest, capability, all of that. And, um, and not only are they, they developing better human beings who are more self-confident, more self-empowered, but they're also producing unparalleled customer value where so many times we talk about, um, you know, f unleashing the human spirit, um, creating cultures where human beings can thrive. Um, it's all of that is too often, in my opinion, couched in a moralistic uh, conversation. Uh, but the organizations that I discovered are not looking at, at human potential just as a moral argument, but as an economic value. And because they see value um, in people, and so they wanna develop the full spectrum of that value. And that includes both helping a nurse become a better nurse, a doctor to become a better doctor, an engineer to become a better engineer, but also helping that engineer become more self-confident and more self-empowered because when they do that, they extract fear from the workplace, that engineer, that nurse, that doctor is more free to think creatively, to think outside the box, 
to think in a way that's fearless, if you will, and courageous because they know that risk is not, uh, not a bad idea. It's not a bad thing. Um, and organizations who actually will reward their employees for taking a risk and, and in the process, they're, they're delivering so much value to their customers that um, in actually one, one of the organizations I looked at, customers are standing in line waiting. They're on a waiting list to do business with this, this one manufacturing organization. Mm. And as you say that, you know, and I listen to you, there's a part of me that goes, yeah, that's so obvious, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? It's so mm-hmm. obvious. It's like when, when I read the foreword to your book and you'd written that, uh, and it was so touching to me, you'd written, this book is dedicated to the millions of hardworking yes. men and women who would yeah. dearly love to work for an organization where their voice could be heard, yes. where they can contribute and where yep. they can give their absolute best. I yep. wish that for each of you. Yeah. It was so funny. It brought up so many emotions in me, Dan, when I read that. Because on the one side, I was like, yes, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yes. And then mm-hmm. on the other side, I was kind of a little bit sad and a little bit angry that we have to be explicit about these things because there seems to be a bias in the opposite direction mm-hmm. <laughs> in most organizations. So, yep. you know, is that why you talk about courage, cultures yep. of courage? Because, do you know, give us a little bit of a sense of what's your opinion on kind of how we've got to where we are today in organizational mm. life? Wow. Well, um, you know, I think we are in a place where we are, especially here in America, um, because we have incredible short-term thinking. Um, you know, any, any company that's, that's a listed company, it's a public company, um, you know, they're only as good as their last quarterly financial report. Um, the average tenure of a S&P 500 company, I think, is just under five years. Um, you know, major urban hospital, and you could argue that the hospital and healthcare is a really a major institution. Healthcare comprises 17% of our economy. And yet the average tenure of a hospital CEO is three and a half years. So we have this incredible short-term thinking. And um, I think as a consequence, we are so focused on budgets and expenses and profitability that not only do we forget the human element, but long-term, it's devastating. Um, and I, I can give you an example, actually not too far from where I live. Uh, one of the organizations that I profiled in, in, the, in the book, um, uh, hospital organization that had built a stellar culture, stellar brand, stellar reputation um, for over 100 years, um, highly respected. Um, the, the, the hospital was purchased by a larger organization. Um, brought in a new CEO, and specifically within one department, actually it's, it was the, neuro, uh, the, the neurology department, whole clinic, um, they changed the culture from one of, of focusing on patient safety to one of, of maximizing revenue. It sounds innocent enough, but it actually, it darn near destroyed um, the whole organization um, 
it, they were this the, the 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 clinic was actually put under a um, federal regulation. Um, there was a national uh, the uh, the the larger organization the the head the um, uh, um, um, the, the, the home organization had to take out a full page ad in a local newspaper to apologize to patients and staff for their negligence. Um, you know, and uh, uh, it, it's not a matter of, of profit and revenue. It's really a matter of value. And that's one of the things that I found high impact organizations, they are, they are obsessed with value. And if they see value in people, they want to maximize that value. If they see value in money, they want to maximize the value that they can extract from that money. If they see value in knowledge and information, they want to develop knowledge and information. And in the process, they do not lose profitability. They actually gain profitability. You know, and I heard you say that a word that I often pick up on with my executive clients is when they start talking about maximizing anything. Because <laughs> yeah. it, it's usually maximizing at any cost, isn't it? Mm, right. So I'd love to get your sense of, is it is it just a simple switch between, say, maximizing and optimizing? Mm. <laughs> No, I don't. I don't think it's a simple idea right. uh, <laughs> at, at, at all. In fact, one of the things that I observed and I, I put it in my book is that one of the key differences between high impact organizations, and I'm, I'm thinking of high impact as an organization that is able to build and grow and sustain a high level of, of organizational excellence, not for a year or two, but for four, five, eight, 10, 12, 15, 20 years. Um, one of the key differences is that these high impact organizations see people and money and knowledge as a resource or as resources that can be developed and grown for ever increasing value. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, mediocre organizations see people and money and knowledge as an asset that needs to be managed, which is a nice way of saying controlled. Um, and, uh, and the difference is nuanced, but the impact on the organization and on the culture is massive. So if we've got somebody like who's listening in now to our conversation and is, is suddenly getting this realization that, you know, they, they work for an organization that treats the, uh, you know, the people working there as, as assets to be managed. I mean, what, what can they do, especially if they're in a leadership position? Do you have any advice for them, Dan? Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually was asked uh, that same question uh, several weeks ago. Um, uh, but this one was from uh, uh, the, 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 the context was in uh, someone who's just sort of entering the workforce and entering their, their early, their first management role and responsibility. And um, I said, I'd leave, get out. Um, really? Uh, yeah. Uh, on the other hand, if you're well into the organization, you've grown and you're, you're already in a position of a leadership, you might be in a position to actually create some change. But um, change happens 
because especially at the leadership level and, and everything happens at, 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 uh, with, with leadership, culture doesn't change without leadership. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would even use the, 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 uh, the phrase uncompromising leadership. Um, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, uh, courageous leadership. Uh, um, and frankly, I, I, I don't believe in courageous leadership anymore. I, what I do believe in is a courageous workforce. And that, that requires a specific kind of leadership. Um, but what I would say anybody who's already in a leadership position, who's in a place where they can actually trigger some transformative change, there's one place to start. And it's really pretty simple. It's not necessarily easy, but it's really pretty simple. And that is the daily experience of the employee. Uh, When we think of leadership in a systemic way, or we think of leadership as an organizational system, and that's what the book is all about. um, The first thing we have to uh, look at and realize was, well, what does the system produce? Um, uh, actually, I was uh, the first organization I worked with uh, in developing a system of leadership was a, was, a, was a regional hospital. And the CEO asked me to come in and talk to him about uh, doing, you know, designing a specific model of leadership. And I said, I could help you do that. But understand, I believe that leadership is fundamentally about a system. And the first thing we're going to have to figure out is what is the system supposed, supposed to produce? And uh, he said, that's exactly what I want to do. And <laughs> it's somewhat humorous now, but I literally walked out the door and said, okay, now how am I going to do this? Mm. But uh, the first thing we did was uh, uh, identify what did we want the system of leadership to produce? And we had about a two and a half, three hour conversation with the CEO, the CFO and the COO. And after it was all said and done, the daily experience that we wanted to the, the employees of the healthcare organization um, to have that would drive uh, clinical excellence was a system of leadership that produced empowered employees and um, actually was empowered employees, empowered patients, and because they were a community-owned hospital and empowered uh, uh, community, but really focused on creating an empowered uh, employee. And so, you know, the first thing was, okay, what does that mean for the nurse that's coming in on the night shift or the, um, the, the, the people running the cafeteria? What does that mean for the people down in the basement of the hospital that's cleaning bedpans? Um, and that really came down to some core behaviors of leaders. Um, things like saying thank you, um, expressing gratefulness, listening to understand. Um, and so the first thing I would tell anybody, if they want to start changing their culture, uh, besides just looking at, looking at themselves in the mirror, is what's the daily experience of the employee and how does that need to change? When you get that part figured out, virtually everything else falls in place. 
<laughs> I love how you say that, like everything else falls in place. And I know that to be true as well from, from some of my experiences and work in this area. And, you know, what's interesting to me is this idea that kind of how pervasive the leadership systems are that I think we have in a lot of organizations around the world, but it's almost like we've got the system by default it's like we've mm. not, we've never thought of it as a system and it just mm-hmm. it's like the cumulative effect of lots of individual leaders doing their own mm-hmm. thing yep. that we've kind of got a system that's creating something that maybe we didn't intend <laughs> in the first place so i love your shift into systemic leadership it makes so much sense to me and i'd love to get your sense of because one of the things you said in the book which really caught my attention was we have the most highly educated and creative workforce Mm -hmm. in the planet's Mm -hmm. history, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So when you look at that, and then you look at the data that says, you know, most people are disengaged at work, Mm -hmm. for example, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. we've got an incredible opportunity here, haven't we? Uh, Jane, you've (laughs) you've just touched on about... 10 hot button issues with me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, y- uh, y- yes, um, we do have, by the very fact that human beings walk in the door, we have the most highly educated, best trained, um, you know, uh, workforce in the history of the planet. And two thirds of them don't care or they're drilling holes in the back of the lifeboat. And, um, that is the fault of leadership. You have to you can you have to, to put that squarely on the shoulders of leadership. But it's not so much individual leaders, um, but it's really the system. And as you point out, most organizations do have a leadership system that 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 has grown on default. Um, the way I think of it is, it's like these uh, reality TV shows that profile hoarders. And they haven't cleaned out the house in 75 years. <laughs> and, and we we have to start thinking about leadership in a systemic way because we could talk all day um, about leadership, courageous leadership, all the various types of leadership, um, you know, how to take care of your people, how to serve your people, how to support your people, how to do courageous leadership. But then we go back to the office on Monday morning, and now what do we do? And the system that's in place won't let us implement what we just learned. And there's lots of research that says that is exactly what happens every day. Because as Deming pointed out, a bad system will beat out a good person every day of the week. So let's start changing the system of leadership. And when we think about leadership as an organizational system, We realize that if it's a system, we can design that system. We can coach, uh, train, and mentor uh, leaders and managers to the requirements of that system. And not only do we create better leaders and managers uh, as as individual human beings, but but the organization thrives because of it. Um, one of the people that I, that I uh, spoke with and uh, in, in, in interviewed with uh, from, from the book, 
is a, a gentleman by the name of General Barry McCaffrey, um, probably the single most impactful, mind-breaking, mind-bending converse, one-hour conversation I've had in my life. Uh, General McCaffrey, he holds three Purple Hearts for wounds in Vietnam. Um, he retired after 32 years as a four-star general. He's a West Point graduate. Um, I don't know if I took 10 of the most accomplished people I know and combined all of their resumes into one and compared them with his, I don't think they would even compare. Um, when he went, when he left the army, he went on to uh, serve as a cabinet position, uh, in the Clinton administration. And, uh, when I was talking to him about leadership, um, in fact, it was, it was a, it was interesting because I, at one point I said, so how does the army approach the practice of leadership? And he immediately said, we practice servant leadership. The next breath that he said was talking about love. Mm -hmm. And, and the fact I didn't even really understand what he said until I was reading the transcript about an hour later. And he was talking to me about the first Gulf war, 1991. He was the, he was the commander of a division of 26,000 uh, uh, troops. And he was talking about uh, his commanding officer a uh, guy by the name of General Norman Schwarzkopf. And he said, he, Schwarzkopf, actually loved me. And I'm thinking, this is the most bizarre thing I've ever heard in my life. A certified war hero. Uh, he's led men into combat in the most extreme violent circumstances. Um, he's been wounded himself. He, he understands what leadership means in the most extreme environments. And he's talking to me about love. And, um, and so I, I, I asked him, I said, well, how does the army support the practice of servant leadership? And as you point out, loving your subordinates. And it was, he didn't think, he said, oh, let me tell you three ways on how we do it. And uh, I'll just give you one. Um, he said, you know, when, when soldiers are boarding a helicopter, the last person to board that helicopter as they're going out on a mission is the highest ranking officer. And he said, when that helicopter lands, it doesn't matter if it lands in a, on another army base or, in a, on a, or a hot landing zone with bullets flying. He said, the first person, excuse me, the first person off that helicopter is the highest ranking officer because their job is to protect and serve their subordinates. And um, as you could see, I get a little yeah. emotional about that. But what would what would life on planet earth be like? What would life in our, in our most prestigious organizations, what would happen to the profitability of our most profitable organization? If every leader understood that their job was to protect, uh, was to value their, their customers, and their organization and their people above their own existence.
Absolutely. I think we would see a tidal wave of innovation, of profitability, um, and, and everything that we want our commercial and nonprofit and government agencies to, to, to produce. Wow, because that for me there, when you spoke about that in, in, in such a way that you did, I mean, this is so meaningful. Dan, because what we're really talking about here is yes, we're talking the general's talking about love, but that's like there's a there's a care like that comes into that. Mm -hmm. There's an intimacy in that as well. But I think one of the things that stuck out for me in that is if they're first off, there's a hell of a responsibility they're <sighs> taking ownership for. Massive. Massive. Isn't it? And yeah. that's one of the things I feel is missing. Yeah. In some of our, in some of the leadership I've have experienced of in different organizations, and yeah. and and that, like you say, oh God, what would that world be like? Yeah, and unfortunately, we think of love as a uh, sentiment, as a mushy, gushy emotion, um, but in the army and the military in general, uh, love is not an emotion; it's a verb. Um, you demonstrate love, whether or not you like your, your subordinates, you may not like them, um, but you demonstrate love by getting off that helicopter first, putting yourself in harm's way first. Mm -hmm. um, there's a great movie, actually, as he was telling me, uh, you know, these three ways that the Army supports the practice of servant leadership. I'm actually thinking of a couple of movies that I'd seen, one of which was um, came out several years ago, um, and um, uh, it's called We Were Soldiers Then. Mel Gibson plays a, uh, a colonel in the United States Army in the first major battle with North Vietnamese regulars in um in, in Vietnam. And um, uh, after several days of really bloody, bloody fighting, lots of casualties on both sides, bodies stacked up, just gruesome, bloody um, fighting. There's this, the, the, one of the final scenes in, after that battle is Mel Gibson is uh, the last person to get off the helicopter. He's the last person to leave the field of battle. And um, <laughs> He doesn't, as General McCaffrey said, he doesn't do that out of etiquette. Yeah. He does it out of a value, sense of value that has been trained into him as an army officer. You put the welfare of your subordinates above your own. And, um, you know, when I, in doing the research for the book, one of the things that just uh, at one point, it was almost overwhelming when I saw what, what, um, uh, really amazing organizations are doing and their leaders uh, have no idea. I th in many cases, they don't have any idea that they're absolutely transforming the world of work. They're transforming their organizations. Um, they're producing massive cultural change and transformation. And by the way, they're also producing more value for their customers than, than, than they've ever experienced. Um, just one quick illustration. Uh, one of the more interesting 
conversations I had was with an elementary school principal. And there's a lot of folks that might be listening saying, well, an elementary school principal, they're not really true leaders. <laughs> and, and I'd say, you try doing their job for about a day and let's see, let's see how much respect you have for the local elementary school principal. And um, uh, I, I sat down with this woman and I said, I want to I ask you about your approach to leadership. And she said, leadership? I don't know anything about leadership. And, um, and then she went on to describe for me the most eloquent system of leadership that I found possibly outside the United States Army. And um, she developed a system of leadership that was designed to produce a culture of collaboration. Um, and uh, she did it very simply by rewriting the rules of engagement within her team of 75 or 80 you know, uh, staff on the, in this school. Um, they rewrote um, some core behaviors that everybody was uh, agreed. It was developed, in, you know, within the team. Everybody agreed. Here's our. Here's the behaviors. Here's how we're going to react, react, and relate with one another. Um, and uh, in five years, that school went from the lowest performing school, elementary school, in a district of 18 elementary schools, went from the lowest performing school to the highest performing school total district student population is 25,000 students. Um, it happened in a, in a neighborhood where um, when they started out, it was 65% of the students qualified for a free and reduced lunch, which means it's um, fairly high ethnic, ethnic and, and economic diversity. Uh, and so they go from, from failing to the highest performing school in five years. And when that wasn't good enough, they kicked it up another notch and actually began breaking the achievement gap, which is a massive accomplishment. Wow. And, and she did it not only by, not only by creating a, a culture of courage and collaboration, but it impacted the entire community around this school, where if you go, actually this in August now, um, you go to that school on the Saturday before school starts in September, and you'll see 50 to 75 neighborhood volunteers cleaning the school, pressure washing the school, working with teachers, getting their rooms prepared uh, for classes in a week. Um, all of which just then frees the teacher up to do really important work, which is like getting ready to teach, teach kids. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, that's just such a great example of what we're talking about here. And it sounds so obvious. So I'm hoping that the listeners are really getting some great insights from you here, Dan, because there's so much work for us to do in this area, I feel. But I want to end on that, on that example, because it's so good. And I just want to ask you, you know, all of our listeners here, you know, we may have executive coaches listening. We may have leaders in organizations listening. I mean, is there anything you'd like to share with them? A few words of wisdom just to kind of complete our conversation today that we haven't got to yet. What might yeah. it be? Yeah, well, let me just mention two. So yeah. the first one really is the, the experience of the employee. You know, we talk all, we talk lots about the experience of the, for the customer. We don't talk enough about the experience of the employee, which is really sort of sad when you realize well, who is creating that experience of the, for, the, uh, for the customers? It's the employees. So we want a positive 
uh, experience for the customer, we have to have a positive experience for the employees. Um, and to define what do we want that experience to be like? And it's different for every organization. It's gonna be different for an educational organization. It's gonna be different for healthcare. It's gonna be different for the manufacturing company. But what do we want that daily experience to be like? The second thing is, and, and this was a, 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 a shocker for me uh, in doing the research. What I found was that organizations they don't de-emphasize their core values, but they shrink the number of values and they raise the importance of behaviors, um, which you might think of as foundational behaviors. So, um, you know, everybody, lots of organizations, they say, well, we're going to have a core value of respect. Okay, that's nice. Um, what kind of behaviors, though, are consistent with a value of respect? Does that mean... Does that mean that leaders and managers need to learn how to listen? Yeah, it really does. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that leaders and managers need to learn how to uh, give praise and encouragement? Uh, yeah, it really does. Um, I, I find it fascinating that one of uh, uh, Campbell's soup, the, the former CEO who was there for 10 years and credited with a major corporate turnaround, his most um, enduring legacy is that in 10 years with Campbell's Soup, he wrote 30,000 thank you cards. It doesn't take a PhD in organizational design or leadership to write a thank you card. Um, and then maybe there's actually a third thing that I would, I would suggest people look at. And that is um, get out of your office. In fact, one of the more interesting things I found was organizations that got rid of corporate executive offices because they didn't provide any value to their customers. Um, one of the, the, the simplest things that I found that created transformation was when the CEO gets out of his office and he goes visits people. Um, uh, you know, if it's a hospital, it was the CEO that left his office and two or three times a week, he just swings by the, the emergency department. And as the chief medical director uh, was telling me that, he said, it's really amazing. Um, the levels of engagement in the trauma department is soaring. Uh, the trust of, of executive leadership is soaring. And the only thing that's different is the CEO comes by to say, hi, how are you doing? Is there anything out, anything that you need? How can I help you? And again, it takes, it doesn't take a, any brilliant strategist to do that. It's simple, but uh, we got to get out of our chairs and yeah. do some management by walking around. It's that simple. Yeah, I love that. Dan, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. I could keep talking to you for ages, <laughs> but I know our listeners will have learned so much. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for giving me this opportunity, Jane. <laughs> I really do appreciate it. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for listening in. Before we go, I want to remind you that all the resources and links for our guests are in the show notes at sacredchangemakers.com. And a big thank you to our sponsors, Coaches Business School, who are helping us to make a direct impact aligned with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, all visible on our website. 
And if you're a coach wanting to grow your impact, you will need to understand how to build a business that works today. So check out Coaches Business School's unique frameworks and methods to help you grow your business in a way that works for you and your clients and helps make a meaningful difference in our world. Hashtag transition team. It's time to build a bridge from what you want in life to include what the world needs from you. Together, we can make a meaningful difference. Again, you can find us at sacredchangemakers.com and our sponsors at coachesbusinessschool.com. And if our episode resonated with you today, I hope you'll consider joining us. So for now, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your intention and efforts to make our world a better place. Until next time, lots of love.